Also, I just want to uh, commend the congregation uh, this morning's contribution, and we don't have <clears throat> we don't have uh, tonight's calculated into it yet. Uh, but this morning's contribution was six thousand five hundred and eighty-seven dollars, and so I think that's uh, commendable of the congregation because we see a need and we want to fulfill that need uh, as much as possible. And so we just want to thank everyone that put in extra and did more, uh, did all that they could. Just continue to remember to pray for those individuals in those areas, those that are working for the church, uh, that are helping the gospel to be spread, and now have an opportunity to do even more good things in those areas. So keep that work in your, in your prayers. <clears throat> also... As Russ mentioned, uh, the baskets that were uh, prepared this morning is, or after the morning service, it's good to see the young people uh, involved uh, in helping with that effort, uh, just to show that everyone is in need or is needed. And uh, whoever you are and whatever your age, there's something that you can do. And so I want to commend the young people that helped put those together, <clears throat> but also uh, thank those that brought the things, the items in that were put into the basket. And uh, I think there was 22 baskets, and they're going to six different homes. Is that correct? All right. So just, uh, just keep that in mind. And our next uh, thing on the list of helping uh, so far is... Uh, is uh, Schultz Lewis and so keep that in mind uh, we're usually very generous in that area also and we just want to I just want to commend us uh, each one of us for the work that we do uh, because uh, we are needed God needs us and we're doing a I think a good work there are many books that are out there that claim to be the word of God you see the Quran, the divine principles the Book of Mormons, the Science and Health with Keys to the Scripture, all of those claim that they are uh, from the Word of God or the Word of God itself. And how do we know that the Bible is the inspired, God-breathed Word of God? How do we know that that is His? I think that it's important for us to realize that the Bible is attacked all the time. That there are people that want to destroy what the Bible says. Uh, they want us to disregard it. We're kind of odd if we follow it and, and we pay attention to it. And so I want our young people to understand that there are reasons why we can trust the Bible. And all of us need to understand that God has given us something that you and I can have faith in. I remember years ago, and I've mentioned this before, that someone told me, or uh, we were going back and forth with uh, questions that they had and answered, uh, that I worship the Bible more than I worship God. And in their terminology, or in their uh, definition of uh, respecting God, that would mean that they could disregard what the Bible says. And I believe that if we trust God and we worship God, then it has to be based upon His Word. Amen. Our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, so our faith must be based upon what the Bible teaches. And so when I worship God, I worship God according to His pattern, His plan, and I know that He is God based upon what this book tells me. And so we need to understand that it is precious, that it is something special. That it is something that we need to he adhere to uh, and, and, and be thankful for. And so how can we know that the Bible is the inspired Word of God? Well, consider the evidences that we can see. And, and I would just recommend, uh, one, one thing that I would recommend is there's a, a video out by Apologetic Press uh, with, uh, from Kyle Butt. 
Now, that is outward doubt, and it has a lot of other things. Pretty much, I'm just going to hit some highlights tonight. Uh, but it goes into more detail about why we can trust the Bible and why it's important that we, uh, we follow what it teaches us. And so how do we know, when I mention these other books, how do we know that those aren't from God? Well, if I took a picture and we had a, a thousand people in that picture... And one individual that you were looking for, let's say it's your, a family member, a child of yours, or your spouse, or your mom or dad, and they're the only ones in that picture of a thousand people that you're going to recognize, how do you find out that it's them? Well, you look around and you search until you find the exact one that is that belongs to you. And now maybe sometimes when you look at those pictures, and there are times that we see someone that looks very similar to the individual that you're looking for. Well, in God's Word, God's Word shows us what we need to be looking for. And I think that when we look in God's Word, we can see that it is divine, that it is truly inspired from God. And some of these other books that we may look at, they take scriptures because they say other scriptures in the Bible are corrupt. And so they take a few scriptures and they use that to come up with their book. Well, we need to understand that the Bible is real. And so when we look at what the Bible has to say, one of the first things I would point out is that it testifies in its own defense. It points out that it is the Word of God. And you say, well, how could somebody do that? How can the Bible declare that it is God's Word and why should we believe that? Well, let me ask you, if you were going to, uh, going to uh, court for something that you had, that were being accused of, does it make sense that you would be able to take the stand in your own defense? Shouldn't you be able to say, listen, I'm innocent of what you're, you're, you've accused me of? And so you give your own answer or answer to the judge or whatever questions are asked because that's the right that you have as an individual. And so it should be no different with God in His Word that He has every right to claim that, he, this, that this book is divine, that it is inspired, that it is God's breathe. And so we have passages of the Scripture like was read for us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 21 also tells us, Knowing this that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so we find there in those two passages of the Scripture that the Scripture claims to be from God. And that God has given us everything that we need in order to live a life that's acceptable to Him. He's told us what we need to do so that we can mature as a Christian, so we can grow as a Christian. And we realize from what Peter says that I don't get to interpret it the way I want or you get to interpret it the way you want. We need to understand what God wants and that's the way it should be interpreted. But they didn't just come up with their own ideas and start writing. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
And they wrote what God wanted written, what Jesus wanted written uh, in His Word. We can find in the, in the entire Bible that over 3,000 times that the, the phrase of, Thus saith the Lord, or uh, the Word of the Lord uh, has come to me, or uh, is, uh, is uh, in my mouth. We can find those terms used many different times. And it shows us that those individuals that were speaking were speaking from the Word of God. We talked about Balaam this morning. And even Balaam, as a wicked, uh, sinful individual, still proclaimed God's Word. He told people what God had uh, said. That's what he told the king. And he wouldn't curse the children of Israel like the king wanted. And so it's important for us to know that when people are speaking, that they need to know, that we need to know that it's reliable. Think about what's at stake if the Bible isn't accurate, if it isn't true. I mentioned, I think it was in Bible class this morning, that from time to time people will misquote Scripture and base their salvation upon that misquoted Scripture. And when you correct them to show them what the Bible actually says, they sometimes get upset. But because they've changed God's Word, doesn't mean that God's Word has changed. And so when people say, thus saith the Lord, that's an important statement. Because even standing up here talking, anybody that's up here, when they say, thus saith the Lord, it better be the Lord's Word that they're saying. Because it's important. And so we look at all of those phrases that are throughout the, the Old and the New Testament of what God has said, and we trust that it is God's Word. But then you can look at the unity of the Scripture. You can go back into the Old Testament and you can see that there's a pattern that goes all the way through. Somebody calls it sometimes a scarlet thread that goes all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And in all of that, you see the preparation that is made for Jesus to come to this world, for a Messiah, the Savior, to come to die for our sins. And we see that all the way back in Genesis. <clears throat> and Genesis is the book of law. And we see that Jesus, when He was here on this earth, lived under that law that God had given there in the Old Testament. And then we can see prophecies throughout the Old Testament. And we see in the Psalms, we see things that are written and Christ is involved in, in those words also. And then we get into the New Testament and we can see the biography of Christ. How He came into the world, how He lived His life while He was here, and how He died on the cross for our sins. And then in, in Acts, we see the history of the church. And then we see the epistles, the letters that were written to guide us in what the Lord wants us to do, what Jesus wants us to do. Because it was Jesus who told His disciples that the Spirit would come and guide them in all truth, bring to their remembrance the things that Jesus had said. And we know that on occasions that the disciples or apostles... They didn't really understand what was being said. And then after it happened, their eyes were opened. They were enlightened. They understood then what Jesus meant. And so all, all through the Bible we see harmony. We see unity. That God had a plan from the foundations of the world that He would send His Son to die on the cross. We also see when you look at the Bible that is indestructible. And there have been many people that have tried to destroy the Bible, but the Bible is still here today. And people may ignore it, people may want to throw it away, but that doesn't change one bit of what God's Word says. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, it says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 
God's Word is going to be there. We may not live under the Old Law, under the Old Testament. We live under the New Testament. After Jesus died on the cross, we find what we're supposed to do in order to be saved and worship and live and do all of those things that God wants us to do. And Jesus tells us that we're going to be judged by those words. That's what we're going to be judged by when we stand before Him on the Day of Judgment. And so we can disregard God's Word, but that doesn't change God's Word. It's still there. And we need to understand that. In fact, in John chapter 10 and verse 35, it tells us there that the Word of God came and the Scriptures cannot be broken. And so when God states something, it's not going to change. And there's another blessing in, in just that statement alone, that when God says something, it's not going to change. Because when the Lord tells us what we need to do to be saved, it's going to be the same thing today, 100 years ago, 10,000 years from now, until the Lord comes again. It's going to be the same. You see, many have tried to, to destroy the Bible and its influence on people. But all attempts have failed. Jeremiah chapter 36, beginning in verse 22. It says, Now the king sat in the winter house on the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudai had read three or four leaves, he cut it with a penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until the roll was consumed in the fire. Here's an individual who had no respect for God's Word. He didn't like what it said. And so he took his knife out and he cut the pages out and he threw them in the fire. Now, I know that a lot of people would think, well, that got rid of it. I don't have to think about it. But that doesn't change it one bit. Try doing that with your when, when, when you sign a, a mortgage contract. Well, you know, Mr. Banker, I just burnt a contract so I don't have to pay anymore. Do you think that would work? Or try that with your car loan. Or try that with a lot of other things in life. I don't have to do what I'm supposed to because I burned it. Well, the same is true with God's Word. Just because you try to destroy it, and the world tries to destroy it, doesn't mean that we're not going to be judged by those words still in the end. <clears throat> and so we see that it's not, it cannot be destroyed. It's also, there's, there's no partiality in God's Word. You see, the Bible records the morality and the immorality, the victories and the losses, the great events and the scandalous events in all the lives of of the heroes that we see in the Bible. We can look at individuals that have great respect in God's Word. Adam or Abraham, Adam, uh, Noah, different ones that did what God told them to do. But we see where they weren't that perfect example. We can see where they sinned. And I think that that's amazing that God's Word not only shows their victories or their triumphs, but also points out their flaws. There was only one person that was perfect, and that was Jesus Christ. And of all the gazillion people that have lived on this planet, there's only been one that has lived a perfect life. And so sometimes we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm not worthy. I don't deserve God because I've sinned. I've done something awful. But we can look at individuals in the Bible that they did things that were awful also. And sometimes they changed. <clears throat> and when they changed, we see that they were restored. 
I listened to an individual on the internet the other day who was talking about the Bible and why in the world would any evangelical ask their, their children to read the Bible. And then he went on to point out all the stories in the Bible about Lot and his wives, Noah and what he did when he got drunk and his son saw him. And he pointed out all the terrible things that were there. Those things are there for a reason. And I think they're there to show us that they weren't perfect. And God has nothing to hide. He wants us to understand that it's his perfect sacrifice is what we need. It's not a perfect life. Because we're not going to be perfect. We're going to sin. And we can be thankful for what He's done for us. But His Word exposes the good and the bad. And that's something I think that is very important. We can also see the historical and scientific and geographic references that they are accurate in the Bible. And while the Bible is not a history book, it's not a science book, it's not a geography book, uh, but when it does reference those matters, it is very accurate. In fact, you can look in the Old Testament and you can see quarantines and things of that nature before they even understood some of the diseases and things that could happen. The paths of the sea. Somebody read that it was in the Bible, read it in the Bible, and they said it's got to be there. And so they figured out that there are paths in the sea. They talk about the, the earth being flat. Well, the Bible showed that it was a sphere. And people now know that it, that's what it is. And so there's a lot of things that the Bible revealed when people didn't even understand what it was talking about. But God was protecting His people. I've read where people were searching for cities, trying to do uh, uh, archaeological digs. And they thought that the city was in this location, but the Bible said it was in a different location. Well, they thought that they knew, and so they went where they thought it was right. But then when they went to where the Bible said it was, they found what they were looking for. And so we can see that it's very accurate in telling us what we need to do and how to live and some of the things that it points out. But we also see that there's logic and rationale that is demanded with the Bible. You see, think about when you read the Bible, think about it. The possibilities of how the Bible came into existence. If evil men were the author, is it within their ability or their disposition to write such a book as the Bible? Can you imagine evil people writing a book like the Bible? If good people wrote it, well, what's that say? Well, good men could not have written it and made it up themselves and then said that it was from God. Because if it was just made up, and that's I want to stress it, if it's just made up by these good people and they say that it's God's Word, then they're lying Thus, they would no longer be good people. So when you think about it, I think logic demands when you see the consistency of the book all the way through, 
it makes sense that God wrote it. And that's not the only one that makes sense when we think about what the Bible tells us. When we think about salvation, when we think about how to live our lives, when we hear about our, our, what God has planned for us uh, for that place in heaven, all of those things take logic and reason. Man could not have made it up themselves. <clears throat> and then as we mentioned on Wednesday night, when you look in the Bible, you see the fulfillment of prophecy, which I believe is one of the greatest evidences that, God, that this is God's Word. Because in many cases, hundreds of years prior to an event taking place, it is predicted. It is prophesied what's going to happen. And we looked at some of those on Wednesday, and I want to go over a couple of those. But we've looked at some in the past also. Because I believe that when we look at the details of some of those prophecies, you can't help but wonder, how did they know? When some were written like 700 years before Christ even came to this world. And so when we look at, at prophecy, first of all, we need to realize that it has to be detailed enough to exclude just chance that it happened. It has to be something that's very accurate so that you, can, you will know that it's been fulfilled when it's fulfilled. You know what to look for. And it can have, uh, or it has to be 100% free from error. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 22, listen to what it says. When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. The Lord knew that there would be people out there that would be false prophets. And so one of the ways that you can tell if a prophecy or a prophet is true is does it come to pass? And as I said, you know, Isaiah spoke like 750 years before Christ came. But 750 years later, if it was never fulfilled, then Isaiah would have been a false prophet. But we know that he wasn't a false prophet because we can see some of those prophecies that were fulfilled. Zechariah is another example. But let's look at uh, one in particular in Daniel chapter 2. And there we see a, prof a prophecy that was foretold, and then we see it fulfilled. In Daniel chapter 2, we know that the king had a dream. And it tells us, beginning in verse 5, Daniel chapter 2, the king answered and said to, uh, said to the Chaldeans, The thing is done for, for, uh, gone from me. If ye will, uh, will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show me the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive me gift, or received of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Now here's the exciting thing is Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, but he wants his magicians to tell him what the dream was. He's not going to tell them what the dream is. He wants them to tell him what the dream is. To remind him of the dream. So, if they can do this, he's going to put them to death. He's going to kill them. He's going to cut them up in pieces. Down to verse 31 of that same chapter. 
Daniel had heard what was going to happen, and he, that they were all going to die. That if they couldn't interpret it, they said it was impossible. And so Daniel intervenes. And so Daniel goes before the king. And beginning at verse 31, it says, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image. This great image, which, whose brightness was, was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till, uh, thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet, and were of the, uh, upon its feet. Let me see where I'm at here. <laughs> Back verse thirty-four. Thou sawest with, with, uh, still or till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, and were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. Then was the iron and clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together, and became like the chafe of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried it away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. And so here we have Daniel, he's, he's telling the king what the dream was. And it's this giant image that he sees, that's gold and silver and brass and, and iron and clay. And so he goes on to tell the king what the interpretation of. And he tells the king, it's not him that's doing it. It's the Lord that's revealing this to him. And so in verse 37 it says, Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And whithersoever the, the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowl of the heavens hath he given into thy hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art the head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, Part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron. For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were, were part of the iron and part of the clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another even as iron is not mixed with clay. In verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron and brass and the clay, the silver and the gold, that the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and a dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. There we see the interpretation that there's going to be four kingdoms. Babylon's the first. The Medo-Persian kingdom is second. 
They're going to re replace uh, Babylon. And then eventually the Greece Empire with Alexander the Great and then the Roman Empire. But that small stone is the church. That's the kingdom of God that is going to come and it's going to be set up. And we see that kingdom established in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when, when the first gospel sermon was preached on that day and people were added to the Lord's church. And so we see it fulfilled in the days of those kings. That's when it was to take place. In the days of the Roman Empire, we see that it happened. And guess what? That kingdom still stands today that God set up. That church that He established is still in existence today. And it always will be. Because you can take the seed, even if you wiped out every single Christian on the face of the earth, you can take the seed from God's Word and you can still plant that seed, the Gospel, and people can always obey that Gospel. So that church will continue. That kingdom will continue. And we can be thankful for that. Listen to what it says over in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the tops of the mountain and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. There again you see a prophecy about what's going to happen. And on the day of Pentecost, how many nations were represented on that occasion? You can go to Acts chapter 2 and you can read how many nations were there, how many people were there. That's fulfillment of prophecy. And we're thankful that we can read things like that and to know that we don't have to continue to look for the Messiah because He's already come. Now how do we know that? How do we know that His church is established? Because we see it prophesied in the Old Testament, but we see that prophecy fulfilled in the New Testament. And so we look at prophecies as we did on Wednesday evening concerning Christ. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the fold of an ass. If you read in Matthew chapter 21 or Mark chapter 11 or Luke chapter 19 or John chapter 12, you can see exactly what the Lord does, that he comes riding in to Jerusalem on that colt. And it's amazing, as we pointed out on Wednesday evening, it's amazing because that colt had never been ridden before. And that shows the power that he has over nature, for one. But he rode triumphantly in. And if you read there in Matthew, it's an, almost an exact quote of what is said there in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. In Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13, And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for me the price, the price thirty pieces of silver, and the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, the potter, and got a goodly price that I was prized at of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. There again, as we, I mentioned on Wednesday evening, there are people that want to look at these prophecies and say, they apply somewhere else. But when you read what that prophecy says, and then we find in the New Testament that it's fulfilled to, to the letter, that is something that is impressive because Zechariah prophesied hundreds of years again before it took place. 
Listen to this. Uh, <clears throat> the prophecy that suggested that there would be bargaining uh, in, con- in connection with the betrayal of Jesus. Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. The prophecy also specifies silver. Silver pieces would be used in the transaction. Again, hundreds of years before it took place. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 15, And they coveted with him for thirty pieces of silver. The exact number of coins was prophesied. Thirty pieces of silver. And again, in Matthew chapter 26, 15, and chapter 27, verse 3, we see where that was fulfilled. You see, 30 pieces of silver under the Mosaical law was the price of compensation for a damaged slave that had been pushed or gored by a neighbor's ox. And that's found in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 32. And Jesus, as the Bible tells us, had taken on the form of a servant. And so when you see the price that was paid, that was the price that was paid for a servant that was injured. And now we see that Jesus, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, <clears throat> but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus was a servant. And we see that he's going to be wounded on the cross for you and me. Zechariah's prophecy indicated that 30 pieces of silver would be returned and cast to the potter in the house of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. You see, one of the things I want to point out is when they came to, to or when Judas came back and wanted to repent, they didn't care about Him. And I like to point out that many times in our own lives, people use us. And when they use us and get what they want, they discard us. They don't have, want to have anything to do with us. And that's exactly what happened in Judas's case. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 4, listen. Say, Judas is saying this, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou to that. They didn't care about Judas anymore. They used Judas to get what they wanted. We need to be careful because there's people that will use, use us as, as young people and use us as Christians sometimes. And so we need to be on guard that the devil doesn't get us. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse or 27 and verse 5, Judas, it says, cast down the pieces of silver in the temple. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 9, it says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they, whom they of the, the children of Israel did value, and gave them of the potter's field as the Lord appointed. Matthew tells us there that this prophecy about silver and the price of blood and, and the purchase of the potter's field was a fulfillment of prophecy. He credits it to Jeremiah. And sometimes people want to say, well, you know, he's got that wrong. Doesn't say Jeremiah didn't say it. 
It just says that we have it, we don't have it recorded. But we know that Zachariah said it. And because he said it, guess what? It's still there. In fact, uh, someone pointed out, uh, which I'd already in, uh, knew this, but <clears throat> you know, Paul says, you know, it's more blessed to give than to receive, that the Lord taught that. You won't find that in the, the four Gospels. But did Jesus say that? Can we see examples of that? Do you doubt that he said that with all the other things that he taught? Just because we can't read it doesn't mean that it wasn't said by those individuals. And so we need to understand what took place. <clears throat> we can see that eventually that money was used to purchase a potter's field. And it was called the field of blood. And it was called the field of blood because of what happened to Judas when he went out and he hung himself. It tells us that he fell, the, the branch broke or the rope broke, whatever, and he fell. And his <clears throat> guts gushed out. And it became known as the field of blood. Old Testament prophecy is something that is exciting to read. Because I think it helps to confirm God's Word. That we can trust it. That it is reliable. That it is faithful. And it will take us to where we want to go. And that's heaven. And so when we look at all the evidence, I think that we can confirm with assurance that the Bible is the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, the question is, how should we receive it? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the Word of God which ye heard of us, <clears throat> ye received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Do we accept God's Word as the truth of His Word? When we talk about accepting God's Word, you know, I asked the question this morning, do we believe it? If it's really God's Word, shouldn't we believe it? And if we believe it, doesn't that mean that we would put it into action in our life? That we would live by it? If we would read it, we would try to draw closer to God by opening His Word <clears throat> so we can learn more about Him. And you know, someday, the words contained in the Bible are going to judge us. Jesus said in John chapter 12 and verse 48, The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge you in the last days. Are we following God's Word? If not, then you need to make changes in your life. You have that opportunity to do so. You can come and have a seat up here on the front row. We'll help you in any way that we can. You have that opportunity while we stand and sing.